You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. I went to, many of you guys know, IE Bloomington, uh, 40,000 kids uh, in the middle of um, a super conservative block in Indiana, um, and it's a super progressive school, and easy for a kid to get lost for sure. Um, but the Lord was good to me. Um, I was only led to the Lord when I was about 16 through a big, huge uh, megachurch called Granger Community, and uh, just can only be thankful to them, but also the Spirit of God, like just working out the story. And uh, was thankful that in that big sea, 40,000 kids, there's about 400 kids that collected every Thursday night for something called Campus Crusade for Christ. And it was a uh, support-led ministry. It wasn't a tithe-oriented church or anything like that. And the guy that led it, um, Jeff Cuddy, you'd never see his face. He would just be behind the curtain, and that's what I think God used him for. That's what he's gifted for and what he's passionate about is not just leading kids but making leaders of kids and letting students lead. And you saw just the life and the momentum that came out of that ministry. And I personally, through the Spirit, was taken from a faith that was largely oriented around uh, larger programmatic uh, setups that that Granger Community Church had done so well to seeing the church come and emerge out of people, coffee conversations and living rooms and, and, and intimacy and vulnerability and all these types of things from, from program to people. And, um, and so that'll mess you up real good because all of a sudden it's real messy. <laughs> and there isn't like that one staff guy and the org chart guy and the program and the thing that you have to say and the, you know, brand name thing, you, you, you know, you're, you're 360 there. And so I remember one of these encounters of seeing the church become people and people become the church and so forth was late at night in this library. Um, I encountered this uh, homeless man and um, just a smell, like just like a, uh, an ambiance from a different world, a different story than mine. And just could tell that, you know, his past was not my past and future not the future and so forth. And he was kind of nervously moving around and um, looking at uh, pornography in the middle of this library. Um, And nobody else was around. And I felt the spirit in me both compassionate and convicted just because, like, this guy might have been overboard when it comes to substance and sexuality stuff. But it's not like myself and the other guys that I did life with weren't dealing with some scale of that in the first place. Like sin is sin no matter what it was. And the gospel was, 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 was teaching me like sin is cancer. It doesn't matter how, how big it is. <clears throat> and so I think I was really struck. I felt kind of like thrown out into the sink or swim. And I felt like conviction and compassion. Like, you know, I, there's action here. There's something to be done. And so I remember... Um, uh, I waited till he kind of moved off of the computer. I was probably 19 years old. Had never talked to a stranger before, let alone, you know what I mean? Like, big world, small kid. And uh, didn't have my words put together. And I think I just kind of went up to him and said, hey, um, is everything okay? Can I pray for you? And I'll say this one time, just so that it doesn't, um, it's not overly offensive or something like that to anybody. But basically, he looked at me in the eye, and he just came from this deep, almost dark place, he just said, get the F away from me. 
And there's the real world. There it is. <laughs> hey, church is real clean, you know? It's all clean when we're in khakis. And so, um, welcome, you know? And so, um, I'll tell you what. When I was looking into his eyes, I don't know. Like, it could have been a demon. Like, I don't know. I don't know the spiritual ramifications. Um, I think there definitely was some substance involved, but not enough. Like, I've seen plenty of drunk people before. Could have been mental illness. But I'll tell you what I didn't see in his eyes. What I didn't see in his eyes was life. I saw a living person, physically alive, by all the statues of airway, breathing, and circulation, but nothing inside his spirit that was alive. That's a scary thing to look into. And so um, if you put, like bio class, like if you put a bio book next to the Bible, and you ask both of the two books, like, what is life? They're going to have different answers. Uh, probably the easiest way to talk about that is in, you know, Genesis chapter 2, where um, Adam and Eve are warned about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Remember what it says, 2.17, and the Hebrew is real strong on this word, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you will eat of it, the moment you taste it, you're going to die, die. You know, like the little turtle in Robin Hood. I remember one time he says, if I tattletale, I'll die till I'm dead. And that's basically, that's basically what it's like. You're, you're not just going to die. You're going to die, 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 die. Like die, physically and spiritually. But the minute he has the conversation, they cover him up with the, with the coverings. They go out, out, of, out of Eden into the east, but he's not dead. Physically, he's not dead. So you're saying, well, did he get away with it? Or is God just a Mr. Nice Guy? Was he playing chicken with him? Or is every word God had ever said not gone void, you know? And then you meet his kids. He's got two kids, Cain and Abel. And one day, Abel will offering that God accepts because it's given in faith, as Hebrews says. And Cain's is not, and it's not. And he grimaces, and he's mad. And God warns him about the sin that doesn't come to be friends, but comes to rule over him. Next thing you know, instead of Cain ruling over Animals, the way that they should have done, you know, in Genesis 2, the animal's ruling over him. The snake is dominating him, and he's taking his brother out to a field like an animal, killing him like an animal, and spreading blood like an animal, right? So the question becomes, is it possible to be alive but really dead? What kind of a life, to have two brothers and one end up murdering the other one, what kind of a life is that physically? You might have your airway going, but your spirit is not alive. So all this comes to a, a pinpoint um, teaching through the mouth of Jesus in John chapter 3, which is going to get us into Romans 8 where we're at today. But now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and he said, you know, Rabbi, um, we think that you're like kind of more than a teacher. We're not sure what you are, but it seems like you got something going on because you're healing all these blind people, you know? And so we think that maybe you come from God. <clears throat> For no one could perform these signs uh, that you're doing unless, unless they were with God. And so Jesus, master of changing the subject, uh, replies, Well, I'll tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born onathan, unless they're born from above. How can someone be born when they're old? And we think that Nicodemus is an idiot, you know what I mean? Like, come on, man, like... You really think that you're going to get shoved back into a womb, you know? It's like Nicodemus is being obviously sarcastic. 
tongue-in-cheek, what do you mean you're going to just come up into your mother's womb again? Surely they can't enter a second time in their mother's womb to be born. Jesus says, let me explain to you again. Let me break it down. I know that you're 50, and I'm 30, okay? But you don't need a teacher. You need a savior. You do not need a better lesson. You need a miracle. You're sick. Very truly, I tell you, that no one can enter into the kingdom of God unless you're born of the water and of the spirit of God. Like your mother could carry you to term, to term for nine months and push you out and give birth to your flesh. But the problem is that only flesh can give birth to flesh and only spirit can give birth to spirit. And you're not born of the spirit yet. Flesh give birth, gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. You must have a physical life that is incarnated into a spiritual life by way of the Holy Spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Babies don't ask for mothers to get pregnant. <laughs> they don't endure the pain to get pushed out of that pregnancy. But yet here they are, physically alive. In that same way, the spirit is not controlled. You can't put wind in a bottle. And when the wind blows, it blows, it does what it wants. You hear the sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. And so it is with everyone that's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, you don't need a teacher, you need a Savior. So I latched onto these words because that's exactly what Paul is going to use to describe in Romans chapter 8 the normal Christian life. So we're going to review our little uh, uh, whiteboard here. This is from last week. But Paul has made this very strong claim from the beginning to the end. Every man... Jew and Gentile and woman is born under the power of, of sin and death. And although we try to jump the fence, some of us try to escape the law of sin and death through legalism, some of us sin like politicians. We're squeaky and polished and covered, and we got the nice smile, but it can't, it can't save us from our sin. And some of us go to Vegas, and we're in Vegas, and... We're in New Orleans, and we're sending it up. But both of us come from the same place, and we're going to the same place. And nobody can have a spiritual life, even though they have a physical life, unless they're born of the Spirit. And so what, what Paul lays out is a gospel plan. As Americans, we don't understand because we're very individualistic. But the gospel plan is a corporate idea. We come into a Jesus bus. We come into Christ. And essentially... We put all of our cards on the table, all of our sin and all of our flesh and all of our unrighteousness, and he puts all of his cards on the table, which is sinless flesh and the power of the Spirit, and we join accounts forever and ever. We join accounts. His life is our life. His suffering is our suffering. His persecution is our persecution. His father and mother and brothers and sisters, they're all together. It's a, it's a, it's a package deal. He crucifies the old man. He goes underground. And when he raises back up again, resurrection life comes, but the sin stays in the ground. Anybody that's in Christ. The body is raised, but the sin stays down. And so the claim to you and me that we actually proclaimed in the, in the baptism is that we're not just made better, we're made new. That I was united with Christ to die with him in a death like his, and I'm raised to new life to live a life with a life like his. I'm not either or meeny miny good and bad, love you, love you not. I am right now and always will be the righteousness of Christ in him. Living in an earth body that has magnets attracted to the world, 
Yet my sin is not me and, me, and I am not my sin, and I am the righteousness of Christ as I stand. I'm a new, new person and born in the Spirit, born Onathan. That's who I am and that's who you are. And so if I could, this is basically, I think, what Paul and Jesus are getting at here, is that, you know, like if you, if you, had, a little, if you had a little apple tree, <laughs> like you can prune it all you want, Right? You can, you can put it in different soil. You can spread the seeds in different ways. But no matter what you're doing with an apple this year in terms of sowing, you're not going to reap an orange. You can't get an apple by effort or earning or trying to become an orange. An apple is always an apple until a miracle happens and they become an orange. And so... The double-edged sword here of the works-faith argument is that if you're an apple, like, you can't become an orange by trying harder, right? But more importantly, because the audience is about Christians here, he's saying if you're an orange, just be an orange. Believe you're an orange and live according to the orange. (laughs) Live according to the Spirit of God, which is who you are. And so as we kind of close up, Timothy's going to preach next week on the end of Romans 8. We'll stop for Easter. We'll pick up nine, but this theme, five through eight, is about gospel change. And we can rest our hat on this, is that gospel change is simply this. Be who you are. Be in Christ, Christ in you, and then be who you are with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength because an orange will always be an orange. It doesn't matter if an orange is with bad apples. It doesn't if orange was, acts like an apple. It doesn't if orange takes a red sharpie and colors, colors itself with an apple. It's still an orange. And, that's, and that is exactly what gospel sanctification really does look like. And so really, and as we land the plane, this is kind of a final thought, because if it is, this book is about justification by faith alone, joining Jesus through faith, not through works, then really the synonym of flesh and spirit is, is basically paralleled with works and faith. That's, it's pretty much the same thing, because here's the, the assumption is, flesh means carnal stuff I do in Vegas, but if you followed his argument, he's actually saying flesh is also the fake stuff you do in church. So the flesh, the definition of flesh is not just bad stuff. It's stuff I do without the Spirit of God. It's stuff I'm trying to do to make myself an orange without really being an orange. And so therefore, the Spirit is just trusting. It's doing whatever I do, trusting that I don't do it. One of the hardest things that God has in his job is getting you righteous and helping you think that it's not really you. Somehow getting you through the process of getting you righteous and then not taking credit for it. That's super hard. Like, I'm still puzzled at how he does it. But somehow he's trying to preach to you today through this gospel that you didn't make yourself an orange, he did. So he's going to keep you an orange and he's going to make more oranges out of you because you're going to have the fruits of the Spirit. And that's the gospel. What the law could not do in me, weakened by the flesh, God did. And according to power, not a plan or a strategy, he made something barren into something fruitful. So Romans 8 says it this way, Therefore, there is no condemnation. The Greek has no in front of it. Like, no, 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 no. No condemnation. Very emphatic there. Of those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, through Messiah Jesus, The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, so we're going to, therefore, actually refers to the entire first seven chapters. But then he's going to back down onto these next verses with the fours, 
to summarize and synthesize up what the therefore is really about. So the therefore is speaking to the fours. Essentially what he's saying here is that the Adam verdict can no longer be your verdict. If you eat of this, you will die is no longer the verdict because Christ took on in his flesh the sin, condemned sin, and gave us his righteousness. And so our verdict is, behold, my sons and daughters in whom I'm well pleased. That is the only status. He was treated as you, so you're treated like him. And so where Paul is heading with this in Romans 8 is to say that you used to live under this old Jewish, holy, righteous, good, but ineffective and powerless to change you law code and has set you free to live in a law that's written on your heart. How did an apple become an orange? This is how it happened. Verse 3. For when the law was powerless, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. You see, Jesus had flesh. Flesh uh, in this term is a negative connotation. Flesh means the evil, rebellious tendencies of man. But it can't be conflated with your body. Because if your body was bad, then why did Jesus have a body? Feelings aren't bad. Love isn't bad. Eating isn't bad. Moderation, wisdom, doing all sorts of things like having a life with your body is not sinful. That's a platonic, non-Christian worldview that says we have to get out of everything physical to go live spiritual. Heaven on earth means he came to dwell, not exit. So when he came back, he has a body, and he walks through walls with it. It's pretty awesome. And who knows what our bodies are going to look like, but we're going to be down here with this stuff, but not ruled by it. That's the projection. So the flesh is just a code word for how do I call, what do I call a category of a body that listens to sin? Oh, that's called flesh. There's another term he's going to use called your mortal body, which is being given life, which means that your body isn't bad. It's just that it's ruled by sin a lot, and it's feeble. But the spirit doesn't want to extinguish your body. He wants to fill it. So it can be an instrument of righteousness right here now. And so anyways, the law was powerless to do, was weakened by the flesh because we had weak flesh. God did by sending his own self in the likeness of sinful flesh, but it wasn't sinful. So what's the difference? We both had bodies, but he didn't have sin in it. We had sin. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. So he had a sinless body. He put his sinless body up on the cross. And he condemned sin in the flesh. Sin was condemned, not Jesus. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but live according to the Spirit. So basically, he uh, had this big prenuptial agreement with us when we jumped into the in Christ bus. And he said, let's have a little assets and liability conversation. <laughs> let's put on the table everything that you have and everything that I have and see where we end up on the bottom line. <laughs> And so we got kind of sheepish, and we're like, I don't know, Jesus, like, I got this weak flesh body, and uh, it kind of bosses me around a lot, like it kind of needs a babysitter, gets me into trouble, I just kind of follow my emotions, and I get into trouble, and that's, I have a a flesh body like yours, but it's given to rebellion, to God's law, that's kind of stacked up the sin (laughs) reservoir quite a bit on my life, it's gotten me a lot of trouble, and then I look to the law to come and follow it, and because I'm so weak in my flesh, I couldn't follow it. So I'm sorry to say this, Jesus, but if you and me were to get married, all I've got in terms of assets and liabilities is a lot of sin and a big death that's coming my way. 
That's all I got to add to the table. That's all I got. And Jesus says, let me tell you what. I've got flesh like yours too, but I was tempted to try it and I didn't sin. So I've got sinless flesh. That's pretty cool. I'm going to hear more about that. He says, let me, let me tell you what else. When I got baptized and anointed as the prophet, priest, and king over all of Israel in the, in, the, in the world, I got filled with the Holy Spirit. So where you had sin guiding your life, I've had the Spirit of God. What if we just got married? I crucified our flesh together. I went down in the grave. I rose up above it, and sin stayed down. How about living the rest of your life with a renewed body and a filled up spirit for the rest of your days? How's that sound? And maybe some of us were like, wait, wait, wait. But before we could go grab the pen, Jesus signed it and got on the cross and died to our sins so we could live forever. That's basically what, basically what happened. Okay? So... I was born in 84, so like I started driving with actual maps. You guys remember this? Sheesh. Whatever the ETA should have been, for me and my poor mother, who are just unbelievably handicapped at directions, I mean, uh, like at 100%, 100% in addition to like, you know, how long it should have taken. I got a little bit better in about 2001. They came out with this thing called MapQuest. MapQuest was like these like lists of directions with how many turns, but if you miss one turn, you're pretty, pretty screwed. So you, if you don't have the map, you're, you're really messed up. I was so late one time that I just missed the wedding. Like it was at 11 o'clock, I drove, and I showed up when the cleaner people were like cleaning it all up. That's how bad it was, guys, before the GPS. Before I had the iPhone, though, um, I married good. You guys know I married good, Kyra? Yeah. Married great. Married the family, and... David Eric Cotella could drive to Mars on the back of a paper napkin, like, and Kyra. <laughs> that's another reason. That's a, point number two of me minus Kyra is not in good shape. So he used to call me when I would get into Chicago on that five-lane Dan L. Ryan Expressway and walk me through. I'm like, Dave, but I need to know which tree you're talking about because I don't even know what road that is. Like, but is there a Bojangles there? And he would drive me there. How many of you guys know that a map quest is better than a map, but better than a map and a map quest is a guide? Somebody in the car that's going to tell you where to go and encourage you when you make the wrong turn and reroute when you need to do it. When you have a map, what you really need is a map quest. When you have a map quest, what you really need is a guide. And essentially, that's what Jesus is saying here. Except the difference is, I know you guys are loving country songs. Unlike what we want, Jesus is not going to take the wheel from us. He doesn't want slaves, he wants sons. And he wants to operate in the seat that sin used to sit in through the Spirit of God. And, and unlike sometimes as we go further and further down into the you know, more charismatic interpretations, is he's not interested in just left-right turns. He wants the map in your heart. See that? It's that he says at the very end, the whole purpose of justification is sanctification in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. The law will do what the, the spirit will do what the law cannot do, which is cause us to want to fulfill the law and, and to love. And so this is what happens is, why is there no condemnation? Because the Adam verdict got put on Jesus so that we get the Jesus verdict. And therefore, there is no more condemnation in Christ Jesus. And the way that we walk through life is through zero punishment and maybe some discipline, 
but no condemnation. There is no punishment when it comes to our interaction with Jesus. And so our process with sin is not something for us to run from God, but something to draw nearer. Not something to try harder on, but something to draw nearer. And so the logic as you follow this is the fancy way of saying that is those that are justified, like I start puzzles all the time and I put them back in the box because I don't finish them. God doesn't, God doesn't start what he doesn't finish. If he justified you and you have anything in you today saying, Abba, Father, then, the, then the, the, the present and the past is only indicative of the future. If he justifies you, he's sanctifying you. And if he's sanctifying you, he's glorifying you. In other words, if you... If you have your trust in Jesus today, that means that Jesus was treated like you so he could be treated, you could be treated like him, but also so that what is true of him is true of you right now. And he that knew new sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. He's not interested in robots and Borgs. He's interested in lovers. He's interested in somebody that could finish his sentence and drive the car even if he didn't say anything because I want to drive the car that way because I'm afraid of nothing. And there's no punishment in this car, but only discipleship. Only parenting. You wouldn't, you wouldn't condemn a two-year-old kid for learning how to walk, and you wouldn't condemn um, a Christian that is learning how to walk in the Spirit. So verse, verse 5, so this is how he, he shelves out and categorizes what life in the Spirit versus life in the flesh is. Remember that flesh is just a bad body. Bodies aren't bad, but bodies can be temptable, and if a body goes into the bad category, that's the flesh. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds on what the Spirit desires. It's a wanting thing. It's not a do because I told you so. It's a let me get in your car until your desire changes. Not that you do what I want, but you want what I want. That you'll be a friend, not just a slave. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Lord, Holy Spirit, what do you want? This is how I live now. This is what, what do you want? Your will, not my will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's what the Spirit will say. That's how you know somebody is Spirit-filled. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The life governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Then he says this. This is the, the, the chain reaction that happens. Justification, sanctification, glorification. So if you even have a little bit of I love Jesus and I hate sin in you, get ready because your future is looking great. I've seen the future and it looks like Christ. There's a crown on your head and you are ruling and reigning with him forever, as Revelation says. So here's what your future looks like. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh but in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life to it because of righteousness. And to the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead... If, that's the, if that is the protocol of what's going on in this kingdom, get ready, because it's going to happen to you too. You see, Jesus, if Jesus can raise himself from the dead, if the Spirit can raise Jesus up from the dead, can he not conquer your lust in your life? That's the nature. This is, this is, this is the logic of what he's going at in terms of this no condemnation verdict. And so I'm encouraged by this today because it means that we are not called to be slaves but lovers. The goal and the trajectory of the Spirit is not for you to white-knuckle to do something you don't want to do to get an outcome that you want out of God, but rather for God to give you your self-control. Do you know the fruit of the Spirit is for you to drive the car? He wants you to want what, you, what he wants. He is tutoring you and using all sorts of things, not punishment, but discipline. God disciplines those he loves until you, the operator of the motor vehicle, drives like he drives. 
That's what love looks like. That's what kingdom looks like. Freedom, choosing in. That's what, that's what the goal is here, okay? And so this is encouraging me because I've been through seasons before where outside of, my, um, outside of my window, like the people that I'm doing life with, and the people, the person inside of me, the flesh inside of me, looks as much like the world as it does Jesus. There's times that you look out the window and you look into the mirror and all you see is hypocrisy. And what do you do with that? Like, what is a Christian really? And I was encouraged by this passage. Um, I remember early, just earlier on just how, what this means and what this implication means. It's because what at least it's saying is that the Spirit of God comes in a person and the minimum floor is that their heart is changed. Here's the promise of a, of a transformed heart is that maybe it doesn't mean that your circumstances change or that you sin less, but it just means that your heart uh, postures itself differently towards sin, that there's a conviction there. And so being a lukewarm Christian might actually be worse than being an, un, an unsaved person because he used to sin and get away with it and have a great time, and now you can't even do that. So that's the promise is that it's, the gospel is not saying that instantly, once the Spirit comes inside of you, you know all truths and everything makes sense, or that you're perfect and wax elegant with your theology and your activity Monday through Friday. It just means that you are conscious of sin and you want Jesus. And if that's in you, he's saying, well, then I can tell you about your past. I know about your present, and your future's looking great. Because the only people that want what Jesus wants have the Spirit of God inside of them, and if the Spirit of God can raise Jesus on the third day a dead man, he can certainly handle your pride. That's the logic here. And so, and so here's the thing. Think about it this way. You know, there's a lot of babies getting born. I'm so thankful. Um, and we got to pray for Kristen because that's a lot of babies going on down there. And I've been hanging out with them, and I just love them. I don't want to, like, raise one right now, but I love hanging out with them. They smell good and all that stuff, and they sleep all day. Their only job is to eat and sleep, you know? Because it's exhausting to grow from, like, a fetus into a toddler. That's a, that's a ton of work. Like, it doesn't seem like a lot's going on, right? Um, they had this little, like, you know, experiment where the 40-year-old guy had to go chase around the toddler, like, do exactly what the 2-year-old did from 9 a.m. until, like, 5 p.m., and he couldn't make it. He fell asleep at 2. Like, he could not keep up. It was like a CrossFit like you've never seen before. My teenagers sleep until 10 o'clock because they are becoming adults, man. Like, it's like a lot. That is a lot. And I'm just saying, like, the gospel's not saying measure Christianity by your action. You're measuring it by the Spirit of God that's, that's speaking to your heart. And so you might think about it this way, like maybe in some of the ways that you think you're going backwards, maybe God's actually moving you forward. Because he's sovereign and not surprised by your sin, you're actually not undoing things that God is, has done. You're actually revealing and uncovering the work that he's trying to do in your life. And if it was exhausting for you to go from a fetus to a toddler and a toddler to a teen, what do you think it's going to be like when the flesh habits and sin things that you used to run into for your comfort are no longer there? How do you think you're going to act? When you have to go from an entire mindset of tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye, and you're constantly working out your salvation to become a forgiving person, you might freak out a few times. And so I'm just saying it's the, 
the flesh, flesh and the spirit birth is sometimes messier than we want it to be, and we want it to go up and to the right, but sometimes it looks like this. And maybe the fatigue that you're feeling and the fact that why am I a Christian and sinning more has to do with the fact, well, maybe you notice sin more because you have a person in your driver's seat telling you what sin is for the first time. And that's exhausting. So I'm not saying don't hate sin. I'm just saying have a big perspective for what the Spirit of God is doing. He's not trying to take the wheel. He's trying to make you a driver. He's trying to put the map inside your heart. So... Therefore, the indicative, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation not to pay it back, but to pay it forward. It's not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit and put death to misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those, and this is where you're headed, this is, this is what an orange is. He's named it. An orange is born of the Spirit. And this is what heaven calls an orange. Those who are led by the Spirit of God, they're children. They're called God's kids, named by him, raised by him, act like him, think like him, run the business like the way he would have run the business. Sons and daughters of God, the Spirit you received does not make you slaves that you would live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you to adoption and sonship, and by that, we cry out, Abba, Father. If there's anything in your heart that loves Jesus and hates sin, you got a great future because he doesn't, he doesn't not finish what he starts. So if you have a prayer in your heart that cries out, Abba, Father, you know you belong to something great, no matter what you did or what you're doing or what you'll do in the future. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. And now if we are children, we are heirs. And this is important here, especially, I think, for our moment and hour. We are heirs as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. Now, the, the logic is, as he's reading through this passage, is that he's saying that people who are born of the Spirit are children of God. Nature, name, future, status. It's just who you are. You're a child of God. Now, growing up, being born in the 80s, right, we were born in a latchkey situation where our parents... Maybe had credit cards, but were a little bit cold and removed. So we had a, a, a prominence, a, like a, a tendency of needing spiritual covering, life, fathering, intimacy, and relationship. But I want to point your attention. There's not, it's not that it's not intimacy. I mean, Abba is the most intimate way you call Father. So I'm not saying that the kingdom of God is not about intimacy. It is, okay? But if you look at the full scope of what he's doing here, he's not just talking about intimacy for intimacy's sake. He's saying intimacy is for the sake of royalty, the issue is, is that you're a child of God, which doesn't mean God's nice to you now, which is true. But the bigger goal is you're a child of God, so you get everything he owns. What his logic is here is he's saying, if your dad owned Denny's and he died, you would get Denny's because the son gets what the father has, right? And if you were Truett Cathy's kid and Truett Cathy went on, he would give you Chick-fil-A. And guess what? God owns the earth and the meek inherit it. So you're not getting ready today to go live in a big, big house where we can play football. I'm sorry. That's not accurate. I think that the John Mark McMillan song, like, He Loves Us, like, that was a part of our anthem because we were raised in so much structure and wealth but had no intimacy that we cried out for what we didn't have. And the Spirit agrees with that because he tells us to cry out our Father. But the purpose of being a son is not just to get close to God. It's to learn how to rule. 
is to learn how to take care of business. It's to rule on his behalf, do what Jesus would do if he were you. And so therefore, because he's not getting you ready for the beach in heaven, but to rule and reign the nations, he's getting you ready not through pampering, but through perseverance. So here's what happens to Jesus, full of the Spirit. Got baptized. He's called the Son of God. The Spirit does not lead him on a vacation. You know where the Spirit leads him? Day one, the desert. <laughs> Some of y'all get ready. He's not taking you to Airbnb. The Spirit led Jesus to the desert. And you know what the devil was doing the whole time? Questioning his sonship. Telling him things about who he was that God had just told him were not true. And God was apparently not telling him what the answer was because the, the law was written inside of his heart and he quoted scripture. He didn't quote his feelings, he quoted Deuteronomy. He had the meditation of the word on his heart and he was wise, not just intimate, but royal, okay? And so he, he quotes scripture and it says he was guided by the spirit in and what did he, Bible students, when he leaves the desert, what does it say? He is full of the spirit. So whatever it means to be full of the spirit, it does not preclude uh, a time in the desert getting tested and tried, and sometimes maybe driving the car without the Spirit telling you a bunch of stuff and asking you to remember what he already taught you, right? And so this, this idea here, which Timothy is going to talk about in a, in a moment, or in, next week, is at the very end, it's going to segue into, into what Timothy's talking about next week, verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. The reason why he's calling us children is not just that we're close to the Father, because we're getting raised up to do what he does, to take care of business, to be, to be rulers and inheritors of the earth. Co-heirs with Christ, and indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might share in his glory. And so if, if, if you hyperlinked that one button, you know, therefore there's the obligation. Let me just read this one passage and I'll close up. But um, this is what he means. This is what it means. Like we're not paying with our life. We're not paying backwards. We're paying forward. What does it mean for the law to be written on our heart? This is what Romans 13, we have to go click on the little hyperlink on the Bible and it'll take us over to Romans 13 in the application side. 13.8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. What's, what is the core value and vision statement of the law written on our heart? Just love. That's, that's the fulfillment of the law. That's what the law could not do, but the Spirit does inside of us, is to fulfill love on our heart, to be others, not self, to be love, not lust. Love must be sincere. Oh, excuse me let, me, let me, let me back into, this is Romans 13. The commandments, he, he goes all through all the commandments. He's like, y'all had all these laws because you were so stubborn and hard-hearted. You actually had to read paper as opposed to just trust in the spirit. The commandments, which are don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, all of it can get summed up in one thing. This is the fulfillment of the law. There's no law against this thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. James calls it the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you ever get lost, what am I supposed to be doing? Go love somebody, and it'll figure itself out. <laughs> Go love your neighbor as yourself. Love does not harm a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what the Spirit does that the law cannot do. So then, you know, Romans 12, love must be sincere. This is, what does it mean to rule the world Jesus-style? Not Caesar-style, but Jesus-style. Love must be sincere. It hates what is evil, clings to what is good. This is you. This is what you are being made to do. I know you don't like it. You might not like the curriculum and who's driving the bus and what the air conditioning is, but this is where you're going. The future is bright. It looks like Christ. You're ruling the nations, but like this. This is how you're the president. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor in, in the Lord. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people with those in need. Practice hospitality. That's the kingdom of God.
That's what we're sons to do. That's what we're sons and inheritors to be. And so to close, the quick little picture of my family up there. Um, we, uh, my job is to not act freak out when I'm really freaked out, you know, with uh, the kayaks and all that stuff, and uh, like Laura Tucker, um, to have a poker face. Because if you're freaking out, like, they're going to freak out, you know? And so I'm singing the songs, and like, we hustled it all the way back, and guessed how many strokes it was going to take us, and we made it just in time, and I was like, I never doubted it for a while. You know, I wasn't worried I was going to have hypothermia, and I was going to just leave me because I killed one, you know. So, um, that didn't cross my mind, you know? But there's certain things that are for a time and certain things for, are forever. The greatest of these is faith, hope, and love. And above all that is love. And so that's what it, there's, there's a trip and rest, but there's memories. And something in that picture, some of that stuff will change, but some of that stuff will be forever. And that's a week well spent, you know? And so here's the thing. Like more than anything in this whole world, I want to be able to send each of those kids off and I want to look in their eyes and I want to see life. I'm not afraid of their feelings. I'm not afraid of like what it costs. I'm learning about the things that last and things that don't last. And all the things that I want more than anything is to see life in those eyes. And here's the faith. Here's where my works becomes faith is I realize that I can raise their flesh, but I cannot raise their spirit. The one who is born of God is raised by God. If he starts it, he will finish it to completion. And flesh can give birth to flesh, but only spirit can give birth to spirit. And so we close up this whole thing in Romans, from Romans 5 to 8. It is about gospel change, and here's what gospel change is all about. It's all about being who you are. It's about being the new human that you were always created to be. And when you get a little bit lost and confused and color yourself in a red Sharpie and come out and God cleans you up, remember that he made you like this to write the law in your heart that you might be a person of love to rule the nations into eternity. And take the next step, whatever that looks like. But faith, faith, and flesh. Flesh is not just the stuff we do in Vegas. It's not just the stuff, the bad stuff that we do that gets us in trouble with God. It's also the good stuff we do to try to be God. And God is crucifying the flesh on both counts that we might be raised in the spirit that ultimately trusts. Ultimately, the things that, that, the, that the enemy was tempting Jesus with, things like image, things like success and comfort, they're not bad things. Both the person of the flesh and of the spirit both want life. It's both for the same goal. The question, though, is who gets the life and who do we need to trust for it? That's the distance between faith and works. It's not wanting good things or wanting bad things. Everybody wants life. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants success. But it's the question of where do you find it? Do you take it for yourself or do you trust it as a gift? Faith says that what the legalist claims is a reward is actually a gift. So what he says to the older kid and to you and to me, the legalist and the lawless person, behold, I'm always with you and everything I have is yours. If you have the spirit inside of you calling out Abba Father, you've got a great past, you've got a great present, you've got a great future. He sees your future and it looks just like Christ. He might inherit the nations. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.